millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Almost Famous, the podcast where I explore fame by talking to people who've experienced it themselves and ask them how it has affected their own journey as well as the lives of those around them. My guest today is writer, broadcaster, journalist and podcast host Emily Dean. Emily is Frank Skinner's co-host in his award-winning Absolute Radio show, hosts her Walking the Dog podcast for The Times, and last year published her memoir, Everybody Died So I Got a Dog, to critical acclaim. Emily's TV appearances have included Sky's Comedians Watching Football with Friends, Lorraine and This Morning, and she was also a child actress, with Mark Gattis having described her as sci-fi royalty due to her childhood role in BBC cult series Day of the Triffids. On radio, Emily has appeared on the May I Say Excellent Radio 4 comedy panel show Don't Make Me Laugh, as well as Where's the in News, Loose Ends, The Jeremy Vine Show, Claudia Winkleman's Sunday Hour and Women's Hour. A very busy woman indeed, so I'd like to give a huge, almost famous welcome to Emily Dean. Emily, how are you? Hello, how are you? I love that intro. I mean, well, <laughs> it's great. My first... My first question to everyone always is, how did you find your intro? I think it's the greatest moment of my life. I mean, <laughs> critical acclaim. That, that is the best compliment I've ever had, though, being called sci-fi royalty. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we should start there. This is a podcast about fame and you're, I think, potentially our first child actress. I thought you um, were going to say potentially our first non-famous person, <laughs> which I would have taken in, the, in a nice way. But I, don't, I do feel slightly fraudulent, I have to say. Because I feel I'm so touched because I think you're adorable and I've always been a fan of yours. But I sort of think, well, I, I don't consider myself famous in the slightest because I'm not. And people are probably thinking, who's this bizarre woman? But I guess I'm doing this because I, I adore you and I think you're great. And also, why not? Well, so I think it's very interesting. So, yes, it is a podcast about fame. In the first series, we interviewed people who were related to famous people. But I also think it's a podcast in general about what fame is. So Mm. uh, you're definitely not the first guest to have suggested that they're not famous. But I would arguably say, based on all of those very many credits (laughs) that I just read out, the fact that... Uh, your your book has had amazing, amazing press and uh, I've seen you on many, many shows talking about it, um, that definitely people who listen to uh, Frank's show as well would would say you are famous, Emily. Okay, you've talked me into it. I'm an absolute megastar. <laughs> um, and I also don't want it to seem like you just go around calling people adorable. We have worked together <laughs> exactly. before. Me too. <laughs> um <laughs> We worked uh, years and years ago on the Big Fat Quiz and yes. uh, I wrote on and co-created uh, Don't Make Me Laugh with David yes. Baddiel. So what are, your, what are your memories of our time together at work, Emily? 
Oh, I I always was very fond of you. I sound like an old lady, don't you I? Sound, do you know what you sound like? Not only an old lady, but like nobody else was. <laughs> <laughs> I was one of your support. I was your supporter, Barnaby. <laughs> exactly. You know what? I always had your back. I don't care what they said. Um, <laughs> no, I was always a fan of yours. You had that sort of um, cheeky chappy. There was a there was a mischief about you which I enjoyed, and I like mischievous people. I think they have something interesting to bring to the conversation. Yeah, I hope so because I wasn't bringing much else to the conversation, <laughs> um, especially not in the big fat quiz days. When I think looking back on that stuff, I think it was it was so um, if, for the audience. If you haven't seen Big Fat Quiz of the Year, which of course you have, mm. Channel Four annual annual knockabout comedy panel show. Um, those were definitely the days where I was working in TV and I, I, in hindsight, wish I could have just been honest with myself and said, well, you want to be a writer and yeah. you want to perform. So just fucking be honest and say that. But I couldn't. I was too scared. Well, I think I, the impression when I, I think the first time I got that impression was I think you were late once and you came in and I said something like, oh, Barney, you're a bit late. And you went, yeah, so? And I'm like, oh, okay, that's an interesting way to handle it. Because you were, you were in essence, my boss. You're in my job interview. That, yeah. that that is a disgusting way to react to that. And I would like to think that I would never behave like that. And maybe you've got the wrong man, but maybe not. No, but it was okay because I think you had that air of someone who might have been in razor light or should have been. And I thought, oh, he's cool. And I was a bit scared to sort of challenge you. And I thought, no. But as I say, you know what? I think you've always had a, a playful charm about you that it's okay it's fine you know it never it, it would ne you don't you would never come over as sort of you know but never come over in a malign way it would always be benign i appreciate that that's a i'll take it i'll take it we've both taken things from this and i'm taking that um yeah. but also we uh s similar kind of backgrounds we both have yes. um grown up in family so you're it's kind of all in the genes with you your dad uh from my research was the first man on color tv and presented a show called late night lineup am i right Correct. He did. Yeah. Yeah. So you, I guess you kind of grew up in a similarly kind of um, non, non societal norm family as I did, I guess. <laughs> well, I suppose so. I, I think I grew up in the kind of family. I mean, I guess you describe it as bohemian mm. arts and crafts, you know, um, we did, it wasn't the kind of family where we had food in the freezer, you know, um, it was, but we had a lot of wine <laughs> and, we had a lot of weird actors sleeping on the sofa and at one stage a Chilean concert pianist. So I think it was it was sort of arts and crafts, essentially, which I think was probably similar to yours. And I, I don't know how you feel about it, but I think the effect that had on me looking back was that I, I felt I did feel other, you know, mm. and you could say, well, what's normal? But that I know my childhood wasn't normal and I don't think yours was either. <laughs> And I took away from my childhood, my dad, as you say, absolutely right. He was a, an arts sort of interviewer on a, a, there was a late night art show called Late Night Lineup. But at the time, because there were so few shows on, um, he interviewed these extraordinary people. You can still see some of the clips on YouTube, actually, like Morecambe and Wise and Tony Hancock. Amazing. You know, it's fascinating. And he'd say, oh, I just interviewed Grace Kelly. And you say, oh, my God, it didn't mean anything to me at the time. But... But I think he was a sort of 60s man about town. You know, you could sort of see him arriving at the horseshoe in the BBC TV centre in a car and just leaving it there, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, my mum was an actor and she, my parents were introduced, I mean, it's so 60s, by the writers Ian Lafrenet and Dick Clement. Wow. 
Wow. Because my mum was sharing a flat with them and you're probably familiar with them, but they wrote porridge and the likely lads and mm. various other things. So it was it was always going to be quite a showbiz background, I suppose, or artsy background. But I don't know, Barney, what your how you think it affected you, and I'm interested to know because I think one sort of thing growing up around people who performed, I suppose, the legacy that's had for me is I always have a sense, I suppose, of having to be on a bit because we would have dinner parties and you had to sing for your supper. You come with your anecdote prepared with a punchline you know um totally do you feel that yeah so well what I was going to say is um what I what I alluded to earlier that certainly one of the things that I think um resulted from me growing up in a not dissimilar um I mean less uh less concert pianists on my sofa but uh not dissimilar uh liberal because your mum's a singer right? yeah so my mum was a pop singer and my dad was a lead singer of a band from Liverpool in the 60s and then my stepdad in the 90s was Angus Deaton so mm. there, you know there were different levels of it but what it's definitely led to in terms of me professionally I can definitely say is that that feeling of I kind of always knew I wanted to do something similar but was way too scared to mm. admit it even to myself because I had some mm. feeling of it being uh, slightly grotty to admit that yes, I wanted to yes. perform or that I I guess if I'm yes. honest with myself that I wouldn't be good enough to do it or mm. that um uh, and then also this weird feeling which which is a real positive to have this kind of parenting but worked as a negative to me which was just my mum constantly saying you can do anything you put your mind to you're so talented and just not really believing it um, right. And so, yeah, right. it, it, I mean, part of making this podcast is about trying to own those feelings and trying to, you know, really late on in in my life, but trying to get to a point where I'm open and honest about things that I feel not only I want to do, but actually realistically I'm best at. Um, yes, because I think, well, that's interesting because I think, you know, I completely relate to that. And I think that's why in my case, I, I probably parked a lot of the performing instincts that I had for similar reasons because when I interviewed Lee Mack on my podcast um how how many minutes are we in for the first name drop uh, oh okay not bad um very but, um when I interviewed it's a good one to drop though yeah. I mean I, lo I love a bit of Lee um when I interviewed Lee Mack on my podcast he was talking about going into show business and this is actually common with a lot of people I think who didn't come from the sort of backgrounds we came from he said well it just seemed ridiculous that I would do something about that and he was sort of saying well it's not like your family where it would have been expected and I said but in some senses I envy you that sort of feeling of liberation in a way you know that you you I feel I knew too much yeah do you know what I mean totally. and actually I felt and to be fair you know let's put this in context I mean when my sister and I would do plays um I mean seriously it was it was a pretty tough room you know my dad would sit there with sort of rsc actors <laughs> and we'd do this play and we once did some stupid thing called the dumb cookers because i don't think we'd quite realized or come across the word chef so we called it the dumb cookers which was essentially a rip-off of the muppet swedish chef they were sort of chaotic and slightly drunk and we did this because we, we didn't want to do the plays, but the, my parents would always say, go and put on a performance for us because they wanted to be entertained. And sometimes you just want a day off when you're a kid, you know. <laughs> so we, we devised this thing and we did it. And my dad sat there with these RSCs of directors and actors and slow clapped us. <laughs> 
and I'm not joking, Barney. He said, that was appalling. <laughs> it was poorly directed. There was no structure. You were late with your cues. I mean, he literally, he, he ripped us another one. Yeah. I mean, it was awful. And so I suppose in some senses, perhaps I was right to fear that. <laughs> judgment but also I think I always grew up with a sense that the the bar was high in terms of my dad was an intellectual he interviewed you know he didn't he didn't say next on the show we have you know the so-and-so from EastEnders he would say coming up there wasn't a break then but it would be Lawrence van der Post and Malcolm Muggeridge Mm -hmm. you know he was an intellectual in, in the very old school sense of the word And I think I was a bit, I was impressed, I think, by that, but also in awe of it. And I had a sense that I was never as clever as him and um, I never would be. So I sort of felt maybe it's safer if I, if I don't go near that territory. Yeah. And again, I'm interested to know if you felt that about your parents in terms of performing, because your parents were both high profile, weren't they? They, And successful. Yeah, they had their moment. I'd say the most my mum had a number two hit and was kind of, I always describe her as like the Billy Piper of her day. And, yes. um, uh, but then I'd say the most formative for me was definitely Angus. Cause when I, yeah. when Angus met my mum, he wasn't famous. They met in a, because you talked about how your parents met. Um, mm. They met in the green room at Capitol studios and they were both doing a kind of early radio panel show game, panel game thing. And my oh, mum, really? yeah. And my mum was, um, she was then had gone into kind of jingles and voiceovers mainly, but was still known as being Stephanie de Sykes, who sang Born with a Smile on My Face and was in Crossroads. Um, and Angus was just... Such a great song. Um, Angus had done Radioactive, uh, which was pretty successful, but on radio and was the straight man in Rowan Atkinson's one-man show. Um, yes, yeah. But definitely wasn't well known. And then when they got together and moved in together, he got Have I Got News For You and became very quickly after that very, very famous. So that and what was that like? I'm interested in yeah, that. So that was um, that. They're like my most. I mean, they're my most formative years. I mean, it was from like three to thirteen that Angus lived with us. And the reality of it is, my whole family are musicians. Um, even my brother was in a band and had a big record label when I was like fifty. A record deal when I was about fifteen. And I'll go into that a bit in terms of your mm. earlier question. But um, my whole family are musicians. But Angus was into football and comedy, and that's what I'm into. And that's why, mm. in, in reality, mm. that's why. Um, in terms of your question about how um, I have grown from that kind of parental, uh, or, or my version of, of your, your slow hand clap, I actually think mm. in reality, my, my brother was probably the influence that made me find things difficult because my brother was writing songs when he was three and right. was like a, a prodigy like he got this huge record deal with Virgin when he was like 16 and it was all gonna happen and then it, it didn't quite happen but it was very hard like we're very close and I always looked up to him but mm. um, it was very difficult I think in hindsight looking back on myself it was very difficult for me to feel like I was talented at anything and I certainly wouldn't try and do anything anywhere near his realm do you know what I mean so I love yes, I love yeah. music I love bands. I, I got really into like Blur and Suede and all the Britpop era and stuff. But I would never, I didn't sing in front of my family till I was in my 30s because mm. it was such like, and this is like first world problems, you know, but it's like, that's just the reality of feeling like I could not compete in that arena, I think. 
Yes, I I totally understand that. I relate to that, and I and I think there's an element of it's kind of you know even when I did acting as a as a kid, I think I think I had a sense because my mum was an actor, and she you know bless her, <laughs> I'm sure she won't mind me saying this, but. She was, she was, you know, she would pop up in things, but, but it never quite happened for her. Mm. Um, and she wasn't, my dad was sort of a name in, in a sort of broadsheet sense. He had a, a sort of level of recognition, you know, and my mum was more, you know, she, she played the Turkish brothel owner or was in the Tampax ad, you yeah. know, and, but she would, she would occasionally pop up in more high profile things and, and she did work in the theatre, but. I think I always had a sense that she was waiting for the phone to ring and it never quite worked out. And so the insecurity worried me. But I think looking back now that when I got into acting, I very much had a sense that I didn't want to upset my mum wow. if I got too successful. Hmm. And because I was easy to cast, because I was small for my age, and also I went to Anna Scher's, which was... I don't know if people are familiar with it, but, you know, people like Cathy Burke went there and Martin Kemp. And it was an incredible school in, in North London where kids from the local community had this chance. You know, there's a lot of kids from Grange Hill were there. And then there was me and my sister and these kids called Charlotte and Lisa Coleman. Charlotte Coleman, who sadly um, is no longer with us, but she was in Four Weddings and a Funeral. People will know from that. She played Scarlet. Yeah, I remember with the mad hair. Yeah. And the four of us were sort of... I don't like you referring to class, but I suppose how we would have been perceived by others, you know, would have been, we spoke like the kids of actors. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We didn't. So we cleaned up in terms of work and especially Charlotte did phenomenally well, but I, I started to act a lot and I, I don't know. I, I think partly that was, it was a problematic period for me because it would start, I started with small parts and I'd, I'd get bits here and there. And I remember I was about seven when I started working regularly but it got to the stage where I'd be given a play and then I'd be given just small parts and they got bigger and bigger. And then I did a, a, a thing in Dare the Triffids. And, but I think my mum always had this sense that, I remember finding a letter years later after she died actually, when she'd written when I was very young and it said, Emily is a dreadful show off. Blimey. And I burst into tears when I read that. <laughs> Even though I'm an adult and mm. guess what? It's a no newsflash that I'm a show off. But it really hurt that she'd said that behind my back. And actually now, you know, I've sort of squared off all my feelings with my mum and I have so much love for her. But I think I was really glad I found that letter because it made me realise that I sort of wasn't imagining it. Do you know what I mean? That, that there was a sense that I had to be slightly held back because I was in danger of taking over the show and also... This idea, because you know my view on families, and I, I don't know if you agree with me, is that you very much get handed down a role. A family is a play, essentially, isn't it? You're this one, Barney, you're that one, and you're this one, mm. you know? And I was the noisy, difficult maverick, and my sister was the angel. And so that was, so I had the sense that I was sort of noisy and crashing into everything and spoiling things. And I, and I had to sort of be, so yeah, I, I felt when I did acting, I never, I understood the architecture of it. I had a very precocious knowledge because of my parents of the rules of it. You know, I used to read plays when I was quite young. I would read Alan Aikbourne plays aloud to myself. Blimey. 
<laughs> I knew how to deliver a line. I knew how to hit my mark. I knew all of that. I had the technical ability, but what I didn't have was the, I couldn't lose myself in it. I sort of had this sense that you're just, you've been describing of just holding back 20% of yourself, you know, which is impossible for acting. Um, it sounds like a hell of a burden, like to, to even potentially, maybe even, maybe only subconsciously, but be aware of that at such a young age that for some reason, there's something not quite allowing you to, to go hell for leather on this thing that by the sound of it, you completely loved if you're doing plays at home as well and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose I, do you know what was weird? And again, I've sort of made my peace with this and I understand because I think, you know, my, my, the quote, I mean, I don't have it above my desk. I have it in my head, but you know, I, I believe that everyone is guilty. No one is to blame. I think that's, you have, that helps you stay sane remembering that. Mm. So, um, but I think it was complicated for my mum probably. And I do, I found out years later and my sister told me this in a moment of sort of fury, you know, how siblings relate stuff to you. And, and you're like, what? <laughs> um, but she said my mum had turned down a lot of parts I'd got. And she didn't tell me this till I was in my, my 30s. And Turned down on I your behalf? Yeah. And she just told me I hadn't got them. And there was like a movie, the uh, French Lieutenant's Woman with Meryl Streep. And I was playing her daughter. I'd auditioned for the part. And I'd, I'd gone to audition. And I'd been called back. And I remember her saying, well, you didn't get it. And there was a few other things um, that that happened with. And it was that was odd finding that out, Barney, when I was older. Because... I, people have asked me, why do you think she did it? And I think it. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Was, I think there might have been some benign reasoning behind it, which was, look, 
I don't want a monster. I've seen stage school kids. And you know what? She was probably right, mm. as it turned out, because we all know how that story tends to end. And I actually don't believe in kids acting. I'm not a fan of that. So I think she did the right thing. But I, I think it was inevitably a complicated decision, wasn't it? You know, and... It must be so hard, though, having to try and put a reason behind these things without having, without, while knowing you're never going to be able to find out the full truth behind it. Because, because there, there must be so many layers to the reasons. Do you know what I mean? Like, even when you, when you first mentioned the, the, the letter you read with, with that line in it that was so... Dreadful show. Yeah, that was yeah. so hurtful. There's probably even more context to that than is even in that letter. Do you know what I mean? What day was it? Yeah. What had you done that you know, <laughs> 10 minutes ago? Do you know what I mean? And yet you, you know spend what? the We'd rest of your life. That t- yeah. 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 Yes, you're right. And that's, you know, that's so true is that it's, it's for the same reason that really you should never, you should accept that all your friends talk about you behind your back. Not, I mean, that's not directed at you, by the way. <laughs> we started there and we're going back there. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Um, one should accept that at some point our friends will be upset with us and may say things. Our family might, our partners might. You know, that's that's just how life works. Yeah. And I think you, well, it's it's kind of, and it's interesting we're, we're talking about fame. And I think it's a similar attitude you have to have um, that, that you would have with an audience, essentially, which is what you think of me is kind of none of my business. And... Um, I'm producing this work, you know, and in the sense of my mum, what she thought of me and shared with her friends, she had a right as a parent to have a conversation via a letter um, with a friend and say my daughter's being a bit of a pain in the ass, which is, as you say, probably what that letter was. But finding it, she didn't know. If she knew I'd find that now on my own with all of my family gone and no one to talk to about it, she'd be mortified, you know. And I... Do you know what I think it comes down to? I think, look, that she, it's it's so complicated. And I sort of realise now with my parents, kind of what I love about them is the stuff that I used to find difficult about them, which was their strangeness. Yeah. The fact that they were, weren't were like everyone else. The fact that um, we did have Doctor Who actors sort of coming over and they were weird people and <laughs> we were eccentric. And I remember saying to my dad once, shush. People will hear you. And this became a sort of running joke in our family that that sort of summed it up, that my parents were so loud and, but they were so funny and gregarious and they lit up a room. And now to have that legacy, now they're gone. And with my sister, that life, that energy, my God, I feel so grateful to have that because they were incredible, lively, effervescent people. Yeah. And... You know, that's that's the positive side of growing up with those sort of people. The negative side is when you're eight years old and you have a tantrum, um, which I did, which involves you kicking the floor and screaming, I don't want to go to Doris Lessing's house, which is David Baddiel's favourite ever story <laughs> about me, <laughs> that I had a tantrum over going there because that world, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I would have looked at your life, Barney, you see, with Angus and stuff, and I would have thought, God, that looks so glamorous. Yeah. That was the kind of fame I wanted my parents to be surrounded. And we had occasional friends who were sort of on telly, but there was there were too many philosophers and there were too many Booker Prize, you know, there were too many writers. Sorry, there were too many Booker Prize winners. <laughs> that can be my next book. <laughs> 
but it was a sort of broadsheet fame and it was just I don't know I I sort of kids I, I think I was quite shallow as a child and I used to say to my dad can't you get friends with Noel Edmonds <laughs> <laughs> that should be the name of your next book <laughs> and it was like my dad used friends with Lawrence van der Post and I like, what was he gonna say to Noel Edmonds but he he said no no and but he because he had this weird honesty so I would ask him about famous people and I don't know if you'll be able to broadcast this, but I, I did say to him, I used to say, what what is this so-and-so like? You know, when I would see people on telly, because I think, I wish we could be friends with Larry Hagman and Noel Edmonds. And and I remember um, I did say, Dad, is Jim will fix it nice? <laughs> and my dad said, um, no, he's commonly believed to be a paedophile. Blimey. Because he talked to us like that. Yeah. So um, the, the honesty of a... The honesty and openness and potential too much information of a of a liberal bohemian parent. Yes, um, exactly. Uh, interestingly, though, I will broadcast it because my mum sang on Jim will fix it, and there's video of it. Um, and I always wanted a, <laughs> I always wanted one of those medals. Um, Did she really? Yeah, I was just thinking back to what you were saying before. Don't you think though, there's also a chance that if your dad had worked with Noel Edmonds and the like, then you would have wished mm. for something slightly more highbrow. Do you know what I mean? You like, think it, so? just that the grass is always slightly greener. And and then the other thing that I was thinking, uh, and this definitely happened to me, was um, I think all of my friends, well, certainly a vast majority of my friends, they all used to say to me, "Oh, your dad's so cool. I wish he was my dad." And I I bet you got some of that as well. Maybe not maybe not to your face, or maybe to your face, but maybe they just would come and play at your house and then go home and go and be like, "I wish my house was so bohemian and cool, and there were weird people staying around." Do you know, that's so interesting because I remember sometimes we would, I would feel embarrassed of my house because it was, again, being my parents, they couldn't just live in a normal house. I wanted to live in a semi with a Volvo. Yeah. And, you know, one of those doors with that glass, you know, the stained glass, it was just, that's all I wanted, nice three-bedroom semi. And every time we turn up to a house, because we were moving all the time, you know, we just never stayed in one place for long. And I, my heart would sing. I think, oh, they've picked somewhere weird again. Why can't they just live in a normal house? Like a nice sitcom, Terry and June house. Why can't we just live there? Acacia Avenue. And of course, no, they had to live in a gothic, weird church or something. It was always something <laughs> odd about where we lived. Always odd. Like, like there'd be a mangle instead of a washing machine or a larder. Stuff to be embarrassed about. Yeah, I had like a larder and a scullery. <laughs> yeah, Scott, it's like, why? Who it's has that? Place. Yeah, we have it because our parents were weirdo bohemians. <laughs> and and I remember, and they'd keep things like Stilton and weird Dijon mustard. And I think, why can't you just have bird's eye, like decent, honest people? Totally. Oh my God, I so like, sorry to interrupt. I so relate that to that because my mum yes. was the earliest, I think the earliest adopter of organic food. And oh, every, my mum too. And every night we had a different meal that had been frozen uh, that was organic <laughs> uh, and we weren't allowed sweets till, we weren't, we genuine, actually genuinely, we weren't allowed sweets until Angus left when basically everything, like the, the, the gloves were off when Angus left. My mum <laughs> fell into a deep, deep malaise and um, organic food was out. We suddenly got, uh, microwave dinners and San Marco pizzas and yeah, we were oh, suddenly allowed sweets so in one he way threw you were solid yeah, there in one he? way it was because... the best thing that ever happened yeah <laughs> every cloud Angus you know 
But no, I relate to that. Like our friends would come and go, have you not got Soda Stream? Oh my God, why haven't you got Soda Stream? Why haven't you got Soda Stream? Mm. And, I, and, and I would lie as well because I was so ashamed of things like that. Mum would say, there's some French cassis in there you can put with some water. I was like, oh God. But yeah, so we never had a normal house in that sense. And we were, we were sort of always living somewhere slightly strange. And I, I think I would feel when we would have dinner parties, because my parents had a sort of salon if you like, where these people would come around. And my sister and I were very much part of the proceedings. That's the other legacy I think I had, which I'm, I recognize in you as well, which is that I was adulted very early. So I would take part in conversations and was treated like an adult. Mm. You know, I was asked to give, there was a wedding where, you know, Michael Foote was was sitting next to me. I was <laughs> sat next to, you know, yeah. it was that sort of thing. It was like, and I was expected to give the speech. It was like, so... I think when people would come around, I would feel a certain degree of shame just because my parents were in, my dad wore sort of, my parents wouldn't get up late and they were just, my mum's idea of breakfast was, you know, she'd have an orange and a cigarette. That was her breakfast. And Very cool. Was it in a cigarette holder, Emily? No, but she would, she would always say, I just want to have my orange and my cigarette. Like, like it was a sort of, you know... It was really odd, like like she was a very pious sort of, you know, like Amish person. All I ask is my orange and my cigarette, you know, the natural start to the day. As if they go normally together, as if that's what everybody has. (laughs) (laughs) Even my father would say, let your mother have her orange and her cigarette. So weird that Don Draper never used the orange and cigarette together to sell uh, (laughs) Red Stripe. No, Lucky Stripe. So it did. I definitely felt... um, yeah, I suppose, I suppose, you know, again, we're talking about legacies and being around that. And I suppose um, it, it made me feel, uh, you know, that largeness, which I objected to and I actually love about them now, you know, because they were characters and they were extraordinary. Um, and I've now accepted, and I suppose I'm bringing this around to what we were talking about, about putting it on hold, any sort of ambitions or, or desires mm. to perform and, and produce your own sort of creative content. Um, I suppose I feel now it was kind of no coincidence to me that it was actually after their loss that my career changed quite dramatically and I suddenly felt confident enough to start doing these things. And yes, you could argue there's an element of carpe diem there, but I think there was also a sense of, I think I finally realized that, you know, I spent my whole life trying to be like the other, the, the normal people. Right. And I hated being other. And I realized that was my home. That was always where I was comfortable, being with those people, being with those weird actors, having the Chilean concert pianist on the sofa. I, I've always been a bit strange myself. And I I wanted to do, I was always trying to conform and actually there was something I always felt wrong. And having the freedom to just focus on, on creative stuff and putting stuff out there and possibly could even argue, maybe I felt free to do it because I don't know, I, I didn't feel I wouldn't be good enough you wouldn't, because they weren't here. You wouldn't be slow clapped. Yeah, yeah, possibly. Well, so that brings us really nicely on for anyone in uh, anyone listening who hasn't heard of your memoir, Everybody Died So I Got a Dog. What's wrong with these people? Well, what is wrong with them? But also, <laughs> is it not the greatest name for any work of art of all time? I believe it <laughs> certainly is. Um, does exactly what it says on the tin. Uh, tell us a little more about it. And, um, you know, how has it has it kind of changed your life a little bit as well? 
Well, yeah, it has in, in interesting ways. Because the title, I'm glad you like the title because it was actually um, Frank Skinner, who I do the, the weekly radio show with, and absolutely, and he um, is a very close and old friend of mine. And um, he actually really helped me come up with that title because we were doing, he knew what I was writing about and we were in the studio and it was literally during a break, you know, when you have links and there was a break and he said, well, what are you going to call it? And I said, well, I don't know, Frank, because there's so many disparate elements involved. It's a book about loss and it's a book about dogs and it's also about families and how to survive them. And it's about, you know, feeling other and and he just said, well, just tell me what happened in, in sort of 10 words or less. Yeah. And I said, what do you mean? And the red light, it was sort of ticking down the minute. So just tell me what happened. And I said, well, everybody died. So I got a dog. And he literally just said, well, that's your title. Brilliant. And he went back into the break. And I thought, because he's a comic, he arrived at that so much quicker than I did. And it was it was inspired. But I mean, I think the publishers are a bit like, right, can we, <laughs> can we maybe workshop this sleep on this? Because um, I, I, but... I'm glad because, again, it felt like a slightly weird, um, not the kind of title you'd expect and that yeah. felt fitting for the book. So I think writing it was, um, it was it was immensely cathartic having written it. You know, that's that thing people always say um, is I like having written, not the writing process and writing about them and knowing, you know, I really felt by a sense of imminent judgment from the world. I had a lot of sleepless nights about that. And again, that's linked to this, you know, it's not fame, but it's it's um, serving yourself up for a public judgment, isn't it? Of course. That, that does come into it. And I thought, I think I nearly rung up the publishers and said, my poor agent at the time, you know, and I was sort of saying, they, I, was, I, I was Googling two days before the book came out, how much does it cost to pulp? <laughs> a book I've honestly have that on my search history because I just thought how can people read this stuff and people are going to hate me and they're going to think this and it's private and I'm exploiting my family it was very complicated yeah. um and so the public nature of it is interesting because a friend of mine did say to me who's who's famous himself he said look I want to prepare you for the fact that people you're going on Lorraine you're going on Jeremy Vine you're having it serialized in the times you know, these are private moments and some people are going to say, you know, and you mustn't listen to them. You're exploiting your family. And you know what? People didn't. Um, so I was I was reassured by that. Um, Presumably because it's so it's so real, though, and so um, has so much depth to it that I, I think when it crosses that line of realness, then mm. it's people realize when they're reading it how hard that must be to say out loud I think and and I think I, I very much think that's something that you probably takes most people forever to learn or you never learn but being able to say those things out loud and commit it to text and and get through those moments of god I'd rather have this pulped than have anyone read it <laughs> are all part of the process of being an artist I think well I suppose it's that thing I know Neil Gaiman, I find his quotes very helpful when I'm writing. You know, he says things like, think of the thing you least want anyone in the world to ever know about you. And that's where the story starts. Yeah. And I mean, I'm paraphrasing him because I'm not as brilliant as him, but it's, it's a really good thing to remember because when you read a book or a piece of journalism um, or see stand-up, I think that's true of, it's anything, and you feel 
going back to what we were saying about acting, you're holding something back. Do you know what I mean? I'm not getting 100% here. There's 20% you're not showing. You leave with that slight sense of, I'm not quite sure what it was, but it wasn't quite, I I don't feel connected to it. You know, something off. Mm. And I think for me, that's why vulnerability, I love vulnerability in any sort of work that people do. I think it's really important. But, uh, but, you know, again, with the theme here is fame. And I think actually that to me is interesting because ironically, anyone who sort of seeks that out you could argue there was probably there's been an emotional injury at some point I think generally not always but if you seek out um external validation yeah I think there's probably some sort of emotional injury I wouldn't say damage because that's a big word but I think something's happened it might you know there's that F Scott Fitzgerald quote isn't there which I love which is the sign of good parenting the child has no desire to be famous Oh, wow. And I turn that round in my head a lot, that quote, because you and I both know a lot of famous people who I would say were actually really together. And Barney's going, really? No. (laughs) (laughs) Can you introduce me to these people? Who are they? (laughs) No, but we do. We have, you know, mutual friends and we know people who you think, well, actually, they're not. I I would say, you know, there doesn't seem to be any signs of damage, but... So I would sort of say it's not just parental, but but generally something's happened in your childhood where um, you're not enough. You need more than just you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. But what's difficult to tally with some with that quote as well is just the fact mm. that I I see my mother, especially as like probably the best parent of all time. I mean, I know most mm. you're supposed to feel like that, but um, but also I'm left from my childhood with like I don't know whether necessarily I uh want to be famous but certainly successful in that kind of realm do you know what I mean Mm. so you can always put your own spin on these things well I don't but like I say I think with his quote I think he used the word parent because it makes the quote much more powerful and arresting and he's a writer you know let's face it he wants the big numbers you know he wants the twitter likes f scott early you know, that was always his thing but yeah he wants his easy clickbait but ultimately i think what he's saying perhaps if you break it down is it's just a question isn't it it's examining what drives someone and it's it's sort of more i would say about some sort of childhood experience it could be being bullied at school it could be something it could be a comment someone makes yeah. you know it could be being turned down by a girl i don't think it's always a parent but I tend to think the root of that is um, is is some sort of you know there's self esteem often at the root of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just before I go, uh, I've got another question to ask about it, but I just want to say this because it's very relevant to what you said about Frank naming your um, your book. Is that mm. when I first uh, I play football with David Badil and David, uh, we both know him very well, worked with him. Yes, mutual uh, friend mutual of ours. friends and. Um, uh, he also did an episode of this podcast, the last episode of the first series, where he interviewed me about what it was like growing up with Angus and stuff like that. But uh, when I first uh, was able, and that's a, that's the right way to describe it, to um, tell people that I'd had this idea for this podcast and I was thinking of doing it, I told him mm. one Tuesday night just before we were about to start a football match. And he said, I think that's a brilliant idea. You should call it Almost Famous. Yes. And uh, so he is responsible oh, so for the David name of this podcast. Oh, so David named yours and Frank named mine. Exactly, yeah. So uh, We should be in some sort of survivor's club. 
We've come to the end of part one of my discussion with Emily Dean. I loved it so much that we actually ran way over time without really realizing it. Uh, we spoke and laughed about such a great variety of stuff that I wanted to put it out in full. So please do download and listen to part two of the episode. Also, don't forget to press that subscribe button and give us a follow on at pod almost famous on Twitter and almost famous the podcast on Instagram. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.